The Labor Department will release the February jobs numbers this morning with the national unemployment rate at its lowest level in 50 years. It's Friday, March 10th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, an emergency room doctor reflects on the three years of the COVID pandemic. Also, you've probably seen all those ads for mobile sports gambling, which becomes legal in Massachusetts today. There's a reason that they're offering you $200 free, right? Because they're expecting to get that back in the long run. We'll go inside the business of betting. And this hour... It's sort of beyond debate now that the justices do need a code of conduct. So this is a start. Creating ethics rules for Supreme Court justices who've gone two centuries without them. In sports, Bruins lose, mostly sunny in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Labor Department will release its latest jobs reports this morning. Economists want to see if U.S. employment was as robust in February as it was in January. More than half a million jobs were created in January, and the unemployment rate plunged to a level not seen since 1969. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will testify for the House Ways and Means Committee today. She's going to talk about President Biden's proposed budget for the next fiscal year. House Republicans have been demanding significant government spending cuts in exchange for increasing the government's ability to borrow money. Yellen is warning that if Congress fails to increase that, the nation will default on its debt, triggering an economic catastrophe. The president's budget also includes big plans for education. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo has more. The Biden administration has unveiled its plan for ramping up educational achievement across the country. That includes a focus on the nationwide teacher shortage. The plan also looks to expand access to higher education, proposing an increase to the maximum Pell Grant amount, taking steps towards free community college, and padding out resources to HBCUs and tribal colleges. The budget would also increase funding to Title I schools, those that largely serve low-income students. With a Republican-controlled House, this plan will not pass in full. Rather, it serves as a roadmap to possible new campaign promises to come, in 2024. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. President Biden welcomes European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to the White House today. NPR's Rob Schmitz tells us von der Leyen has a very specific concern about Europe. She's worried that the Inflation Reduction Act of the United States is a protectionist act. Um, This is also called the IRA, and it promises tax breaks to companies making technology for clean energy, but only if their operations are located on U.S. soil. And European leaders are really concerned that EU companies will flee Europe to cash in on these tax breaks. NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting. China's rubber stamp parliament has handed President Xi Jinping a rare third term, He abolished term limits years ago. NPR's John Ruich reports it's the culmination of a decade-long effort to consolidate power. She was elected unanimously by the nearly 3,000 delegates to the National People's Congress meeting in Beijing, and he bowed to them as his appointment was announced. (laughs) 
Xi's power flows mostly from his role as leader of the ruling Communist Party, but his reappointment as state president highlights his dominance over the political system. It comes at a crucial time for the country as it faces strong economic headwinds and a growing rift with the West. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's going to be a slow morning for riders on the T today. The T has put speed restrictions in effect on all four subway lines. Trains will be limited to between 10 and 25 miles an hour on the red, orange, blue and green lines. The MBTA has only said the restrictions are because of a recent visit to the red line by the Department of Public Utilities. That's the agency that oversees the T. In addition to the slowdowns, buses are replacing trains on the blue line right now between Suffolk Downs and Maverick because of a power problem. There are also shuttle buses instead of trolleys on the Mattapan line because a piece of construction equipment fell on the tracks. Do you remember three years ago today? It was the day the COVID-19 public health emergency was declared in Massachusetts. As WBUR's Lainey Ruxtell reports, many metrics related to the virus have improved over time, but some impacts linger. Massachusetts has seen a significant drop in COVID cases and deaths since the start of the pandemic in 2020. However, Public Health Commissioner Margaret Cook says the state still faces a crucial problem, a shortage of health care workers. One of the lasting impacts currently from COVID is the real strain on the health care system and on the long-term care and rehabilitation systems. We know that there is a massive workforce shortage because of COVID, and our hospitals, many of them are still running above 100 percent capacity. Cook says she's hopeful that Massachusetts' top-tier reputation for care will help attract workers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. Bay State College is facing eviction from its campus in the Back Bay. The college's landlord claims the small for-profit school owes more than $720,000 in unpaid rent and fees. More now from WBUR's Max Larkin. The threat of eviction is just more bad news for the college. In January, the New England Commission of Higher Education announced it would withdraw Bay State's accreditation, due in large part to the school's uncertain finances. Attorneys for the college claim its landlord, OMV Park Square, overcharged them for rent. The school hopes to settle the issue before it goes to trial in mid-April. Today, the college will take up its fight on another front, appealing the decision to revoke its accreditation. If that appeal fails, Bay State will try to make sure its students graduate or transfer to another school by August 31st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The state is telling people not to go shell fishing in large parts of Eastham and Orleans. The Division of Marine Fisheries tells the Cape Cod Times that there is a bloom of red tide algae in the Nazet estuary. Eating shellfish exposed to that algae can make you sick or even cause death. The closure could last until the summer. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish. Counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. 
online at nutter.com. The Bruins lost to the Edmonton Oilers 3-2 last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. Mostly sunny today. It'll get into the upper 40s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 30s. A chance for rain or snow tomorrow. Otherwise cloudy and in the upper 30s. Mostly sunny on Sunday and in the 40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston at 707. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by iDrive, providing cloud backup to protect PCs, Macs, mobile devices, and servers, along with iDrive E2, offering hot S3-compatible object storage at iDrive.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. Indeed you are. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. President Biden submitted a budget to Congress. Republicans have already said whatever budget they pass, it's not going to be that. So how will a divided government set priorities for a decade to come? We have an outside view from Douglas Holtz Aiken, who served in the administration of President George W. Bush and also led the nonpartisan congressional budget office once upon a time. Mr. Holtz Aiken, welcome back. Well, thank you. Okay, big picture here. Pandemic spending has been winding down, and the Biden administration says we're ready now to restrain spending and cut borrowing and cut the deficit over time. Does his budget really do that? Uh, No. Uh, The spending proposed for next year would exceed the largest amount during the pandemic. So what used to be an emergency is now business as usual. Um, The president um, is, is advertising $3 trillion in deficit reduction, but that comes from raising taxes by about $5 trillion over the next 10 years. That's a non-starter in Congress. He couldn't get the same taxes through when Democrats controlled both houses. So uh, this is not a budget that's going to solve our, our debt and deficit problem. Indeed, even taken at face value, we have $24 trillion in, in debt outstanding. Um, this would add another 19 over the next 10 years. So it's not really a a stringent fiscal budget. Why wouldn't Republicans at least think about a tax increase from time to time? If taxes are going to go down, they sometimes must have to go up. Uh, Republicans for a long time now have not cared uh, about increasing taxes, and they certainly haven't shown any interest in controlling deficits. So there's a lot of talk that's different in 2023, but we'll see if any Congress actually gets serious about taking on our fiscal problems. Mr. Holtaken, I hope the sirens are not coming for you as we talk on this uh, Friday morning. I, I am half a block from the White House, and there's always the noise. My apologies. Okay, okay. no, it's quite all right. It's quite all right. It's part of the, part of the scenery here. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that Republicans don't care about uh, raising taxes. I get that. I'd like to know if Republicans really care at all about the deficit. I know they say they do, but when they were in power a few years ago, they did a monumental tax cut that was not financed. Isn't it true that Republicans literally don't care at all about the deficit, except when they can use it against a Democratic president? There's no evidence that either side has cared about uh, deficits in the 21st century. I mean, it's, it's really been quite striking. We've seen the debt rise, even measured relative to the size of the growing economy, essentially nonstop for the entire 21st century, for two decades. So that can't continue. And the question is, when is it going to turn the corner and which party is going to take the lead? Are you convinced that the sirens are coming? Hopefully it's not the debt police. Uh, but are, are, you, are, you, are you convinced there is a point? I mean, there, there have been some economists in recent years who have basically said maybe the debt doesn't matter. Maybe it can go up infinitely or a lot farther than it has. Uh, I, I'm not in that camp. Uh, the debt matters in the, in the following very simple way. The debt is used to get money from the private sector and use it in the government. And 
when it does that, if you take a private sector investment and plow it into a government investment, you lose about half the rate of return. Most of the time, when the government uh, takes money, it doesn't invest. It simply supports additional uh, spending and, and lifestyle. That's the point of Social Security. That's the point of Medicare. And so our propensity to borrow and spend in this way is a headwind to investing in the economy and generating greater prosperity in the future. Okay, we pay a little bit every day. You're, you're reminding us if you, if you borrow money to invest in something, that can be good. If you borrow money to pay your day-to-day -day bills, it may not be so good. I want to ask one and other question. And that's where we are. I want to ask one more question, though. House Republicans have said they're not going to pay existing U.S. bills, raise the debt ceiling, unless they get cuts to the budget, which they haven't been willing to specify. Is that a wise way to approach this? The, the debt limit has to go up. There's, there's simply no way around that. Failure to raise it will lead to a default on U.S. Treasuries and, and just an enormous amount of financial chaos and economic downturn. So um, they can say that, but they will raise the debt limit. They have to. Douglas Holtz-Aiken, you got a lot of intelligence and uh, some sirens in four minutes. Thanks so much. Thank you. He's an economist who served in the George W. Bush White House and is now president of the American Action Forum. What's it like to work more than 700 days in a row without a break? Dr. Joseph Vera knows. In the three years since COVID was declared a pandemic, the chief of critical care at Houston's United Memorial Medical Center spent most of that time in the emergency room that he manages. And he has seen a lot. Doctor, you have worked 715 days without a break. In sheer physical terms, what kept you going? I mean, you know, knowing that people were dying, people needed help, and that nobody else wanted to care for patients. I mean, for us, it was so difficult to work in a situation where our own colleagues, our own friends would say, I'm not going into a COVID unit. I'm not going to go there because I'm risking my life. So somebody had to do it. Yeah, but I mean, you were risking your life too. So what made you say, I'm, I'm just going to do it out of, out of obligation of being a doctor? I mean, I, you know, I guess that that's what I signed up for, for medicine when I went into medical school. I mean, I didn't do it for the money. I did it for helping people, and uh, I, somebody had to do it. If not, you know, it was a disaster that was going to happen, and, you know, more people were going to die. And I just want to be clear. You took a vacation, right, Ty, when your child got married. So at least you got to see that, right? Yeah, I was able to, to marry my kid. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. That works out, I guess. Um, now, I, I want to take you back to uh, early 2020 before we really knew anything about the virus. What was it like getting up every morning and going into work those early days when there was a lot of confusion going on? You know, at the beginning, it was, okay, this is going to end relatively soon. You know, this is just a, a small period of time, and eventually uh, this is not going to happen again. But at some point in time, you're starting to see every day is the same and the same and the same. And there is like no end in sight. That was the, the most uh, scary situation. Uh, I mean, I would, you know, I would leave the home at uh, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. I would come back at 10 o'clock at night every single day. And, uh, and, you know, phone call after phone call after phone call. People getting transferred to us from all over the place. I mean, a, a, a hospital that was full of patients. Uh, my nurses crying in the middle of the day because, you know, they would see two or three patients die back to back. I mean, it was it was tough. And doctor, I'm sure patients and people just had questions for you. I mean, they look at you as a doctor for answers. What were you telling them? The answers that we had at the time. You know, one of the problems that we had is, as you well know, 
was that uh, COVID became a political show. Didn't became didn't not, it was not a medical issue. It was a political show, and the patients and the families didn't know who to believe. They would hear something from the president, then something from Fauci, then something from the CDC, or the, you know, or, or anybody else, and everybody was saying something completely opposite. So people were very confused. Patients, families, everyone. Now, over the course of the pandemic, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've had to push through um, a lot of grief. Um, and I got to believe, too, that you also saw some of the best of humanity as well. Um, what sorts of coping mechanisms did you have to learn on the job, not only just from, from fellow responders, but also from patients and their families as well? Well, I mean, we saw everything. I mean, you, you know, we saw from people that were camping outside the 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 hospital, literally camping just to be close to their family members, because we have this policy of not letting anybody yeah. in, uh, all the way up to us having to do things that would be uh, different. I mean, for example, we, we did a music video in our own in our own unit because I needed to keep my my nurses all uh, happy and uh, and be able to cope with with what we're seeing every day. I mean, we looked at ways to to help. One of the toughest things I remember from that time is seeing family members look at their dying relatives through a window because that's, that's as far as they can get to them. Yeah, it was it was terrible. I mean, you you have no idea. I mean, being inside that unit, uh, it it changed my entire life. So, how has pandemic the pandemic changed uh, emergency medicine and emergency care in broader terms? Well, I mean, one thing that we have recognized is that uh, nobody's in agreement anymore. Uh, we, you know, some people start doing something and then you say, oh, maybe this is, not, this is not the way to do it. I don't know if you remember when, you know, the governor of New York was asking for respirators, respirators, respirators. Yeah. And then we realized that, hey, guess what? Every time you put somebody on a respirator, they don't make it. So maybe we need to look at other ways to, to do things. So we started to think outside the box and some of us, uh, did it quite well and had good results. I remember when uh, California sent respirators to New York, a lot of people in California were wondering, wait a second, what if we need the respirators here? And as you mentioned earlier, it became a political <laughs> issue. Um, doctor, three years into the pandemic, nearly 7 million people have died worldwide, a little more than a million of those in the United States. Are we as a country and as a global community now better prepared for another outbreak or pandemic? No, I don't think so. I think that we are the same that we've not worse because we are more politicized. We are more divided. We don't have a uniform, a uniform uh, voice anymore. Do you see any hope anywhere? There is always a hope. And, you know, as long as there are people like me that want to keep on helping people, we'll find a way. Dr. Joseph Verone, Chief of Critical Care at Houston's United Memorial Medical Center. Doctor, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay, this is very exciting. We have some news to share with you about this program. Our dear friend Michelle Martin is coming over to become the new co-host with us of Morning Edition. I'm very excited, Steve. The show is going to be at full strength with four hosts, and I can't wait to find out which one of us gets to interview LeBron James. We have both been putting in for him for years now. <laughs> have a jump ball and find out which of you gets it. But it could be that Layla Fada will make the steal and get that interview. You never know how things are going to happen. Anyway, Michelle Martin is awesome. She's currently on All Things Considered Weekends, legendary journalist and institution here, and she joins us in a few weeks on Morning Edition.
Tell me more. This is NPR News. <laughs> Michelle Martin coming up in a few weeks on Morning Edition. Coming up next on 90.9 WBUR, we check in with migrants who were bused to New York months ago by Republican governors. Without work permits, they're struggling to carve out new lives as they wait for their cases to be heard. It's 719. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu MBA. And Metro West Subaru where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm Nagin Farsad filling in for Peter Sagal. Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala which she would choose, Taylor Swift tickets or Beyonce tickets. I would want both tickets. I have a Nobel Peace Prize and I didn't <laughs> Yeah, incredible answer. We'll hear your demands on this week's news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's a slow trip for T-riders this morning. That's because of new speed restrictions across the entire subway system. It affects the green, blue, orange, and red lines. More on that coming up in 10 minutes. In your forecast, mostly sunny today with a high near 48. Tonight, cloudy with a low around 35. There's a slight chance of rain and snow overnight and into tomorrow morning. Then rain until early afternoon Saturday. It'll be cloudy with a high near 39. Overnight into Sunday, don't forget to set your clocks forward. It'll be mostly sunny with a high near 44. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. New York City is caring for some 50,000 migrants who arrived over the past year. Many asylum seekers escaped violence and death threats at home. Having crossed the border, having reached New York, they can't get work permits and have no stable housing. The city now plans to move many of them to other cities, and the migrants are asking what that means for them. NPR's Jasmine Garst spoke with some of them. Jose walks a lot. In fact, he spent the last six months or so walking. Jose is from Venezuela. It wasn't easy getting here, he says. At the U.S.-Mexico border, he told authorities he was in danger and needed asylum. He was bused to New York. But officials here say they're at capacity. Our right to shelter laws, our social services, and our values are being exploited 
That's New York City Mayor Eric Adams in October, around the time Texas stepped up sending buses packed with migrants to New York and other sanctuary cities. Adams has said it will cost New York at least a billion dollars this fiscal year. But for José, going back home is not an option. No, no, no. No puedo, no puedo volver para allá. peligro, Jose has asked that we withhold his last name because he fears for his family in Caracas. He was a truck driver there, which made him easy prey for gangs, who he says threatened to kill him. A few weeks ago, he was living at the Watson Hotel in midtown Manhattan with other migrants. He says he needs a work permit so he can move out. He worries about being transferred to one of the shelters where there's been reported outbreaks of chickenpox and food poisoning. NPR reached out to New York City officials several times regarding these health concerns and received no response. Chickenpox? Desiree Joy Frias is an organizer with South Bronx Mutual Aid. She recently went to Queens to deliver donations to migrant women and children. I'm an attorney by trade. It's really disappointing to see the way that these people are just shoved into these hotels as permanent housing. It's not sustainable and it's not healthy. Care of recently arrived migrants has fallen largely on everyday New Yorkers and mutual aids. Food, clothing, legal advice and health care is being addressed by nonprofits and concerned citizens. Today, Frias is checking out a rash on a baby's leg. The baby's mother, Alba Hernandez, suspects it's from the milk they get, which she says is sometimes spoiled. Hernandez is from Colombia. She says her family was driven out by guerrillas. They've been in the U.S. for five months. Since she can't work, she can't pay an immigration lawyer. And what she's describing is the vicious cycle a lot of migrants say they feel trapped in without a job. New York City has just unveiled a blueprint to address the crisis. It includes working with other cities to relocate some of the migrants and workforce training while asylum seekers await a work permit from the federal government. The plan has been met with skepticism. One concern? A work permit can only be requested six months after an asylum application has been submitted. Advocates say immigration courts are so backed up, that can take over a year. If they do everything right away and perfectly, probably a year, but more likely a year and a half to two years. That's Camille Mackler, executive director of the Immigrant Advocates Response Collaborative. She says people are looking at as much as two years without a legal work permit. It's a system that is forcing people to work in the shadow economy because that's the only way that they're going to have to survive. Many asylum seekers are already taking matters into their own hands. I met Luis outside the Watson. He's 21 and scared. He's asked that his last name be withheld. His family got death threats for being in the opposition party back in Venezuela. Luis recently got a night job at a fast food restaurant in the Bronx. His plan? Stay at the shelter, pay an immigration lawyer. But then... In late January, the migrants at the Watson were relocated to Red Hook, a harbor area in Brooklyn, to a large auditorium filled with cots. Protests erupted. People said it was freezing. Luis says he had this realization. 
A mí me gusta Estados Unidos. Lo único que Estados Unidos es fuerte por, es, eh, como psicológicamente. Pues, I like the U.S., he says. You just have to be psychologically prepared for it. Here, you're alone. With the money he'd saved for a lawyer, he rented a small room near the Bronx, which he shares with four other recently arrived Venezuelans. José, on the other hand, transferred to the new shelter at the harbor. He says he feels useless and frustrated that he can't send money back home to his family, who he says are hiding from gangs. He's stuck at this shelter. No quiero ni estar ahí. Quiero quiero salir de ahí más bien. I just want to get out of here. So he does what he's been doing for nearly half a year. He walks. He describes New York to his family on WhatsApp. He admits he doesn't tell them how bad he feels. Instead, he just tells them... It's what you imagined since you were a kid, just like on TV. It's like a dream. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York City. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition, Christina Wong has something that's rare for an artist and activist, money in the bank. She received an arts award that includes a half million dollar cash prize. So much of my identity has been forged in a certain scrappiness, so I'm just like, what do I do now that I have a safety net? Wong's newest endeavor is a solo stage act involving pandemic masks. Listen on your smart speaker, your computer, your phone, or on the radio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, for the first time, there are efforts to write a code of ethics for Supreme Court justices, in part in response to recent controversies. It's 729. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with The Great Leap. A friendship game of basketball mids turmoil at Tiananmen Square turns into a different game. Through March 19th, lyricstage.com. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Germany say at least a half dozen people were shot to death in Hamburg last night when a gunman attacked people at a Jehovah's Witnesses hall. A number of others were wounded. Police aren't commenting on a possible motive. They believe the suspected gunman is among the dead. President Biden says he's ready to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at any time to discuss where they might find common ground on the president's latest budget proposal. Biden unveiled his nearly $7 trillion spending blueprint yesterday during a speech in Pennsylvania. Wall Street and the Federal Reserve will get a look at the latest U.S. employment numbers this morning. NPR Scott Horsley says the Labor Department releases the February data next hour. U.S. employers added more than half a million jobs in January, and the unemployment rate fell to its lowest level since 1969. We'll find out this morning if that strong pace of hiring continued into February or if January's numbers were an outlier, possibly tied to unusually warm weather that month. 
There's a lot riding on the outcome. Inflation watchdogs of the Federal Reserve say another hot jobs report could prompt them to be more aggressive in raising interest rates in an effort to curb inflation. The Fed's rate-setting committee is set to meet in less than two weeks. Betting markets currently expect the central bank to boost interest rates by half a percentage point. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. We expect to learn later this morning why the T put speed restrictions on all four of its subway lines. The transit agency announced last night that trains on the red, orange, blue and green lines will be kept to between 10 and 25 miles per hour. The T would only say that the restrictions were the result of a recent visit to the red line from the Department of Public Utilities. It says the move is out of an abundance of caution. Starting later this morning, sports gambling on your phone or computer becomes legal in Massachusetts. WBWAR's Samantha Kutsia reports some experts are worried about how this will impact people who struggle with a gambling addiction. Gaming officials say young men who already gamble have the biggest risk of developing a problem. Marlene Warner is the CEO of the Massachusetts Council on Gaming and Health. She says it's important to have the right mindset when using these apps. This is a form of entertainment that you should not be using money that you intended to pay your rent or to buy groceries with, that this is a form of entertainment. So in the same way you'd put money into going to a movie or a concert, you do the same thing with sports wagering. Warner says anyone who's worried can reach out to the Gambling Addiction Hotline for some help. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. Some local hospitals and clinics are urging clinicians to help tackle the opioid crisis by prescribing a medication that curbs cravings for heroin and fentanyl. The federal government recently made it easier to prescribe buprenorphine. Dr. Glenn Tucker at the Greater New Bedford Health Center says it's time to treat addiction in primary care. It's not that complicated, but there is a matter of the individual provider's comfort with the issues. And for some people, it's it's a higher barrier than others. He adds that he believes it's because many mid-career and older clinicians often didn't get addiction training in school. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The Bruins' 10-game winning streak ended last night at the Garden. They lost to the Edmonton Oilers 3-2. The Bees will host the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. Yesterday at spring training in Florida, the Red Sox beat the Yankees 11-7. The Sox will play the Blue Jays this afternoon. Mostly clear skies today with a high near 50. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to the mid-30s. There's a slight chance of snow or rain overnight. On Saturday morning, snow turns into rain and showers last into the early afternoon. The high will be near 40. Set your clocks forward Saturday night. If you need to wake up at the right time on Sunday morning, it'll be mostly sunny and in the low 40s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. 
More at AlignProbiotics.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Just how hot is the U.S. job market? In January, employers added more than half a million jobs, we're told. The unemployment rate fell to its lowest level in more than half a century. But a single month's numbers can be wrong or a fluke, so we get some context today when the Labor Department offers another month's worth of numbers. Here's NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, so what do we expect to see in today's jobs report? Good morning. A forecasters think hiring probably slowed last month, but of course, that's what they're expecting in January, too. And instead, we got the strongest job growth in six months. And it wasn't just that strong jobs report that got people's attention in January. There was also a big jump in spending that month as people opened their pocketbooks at restaurants and department stores and auto showrooms. And inflation, which had been trending down, picked up a little steam as well. So all that set off some alarm bells for Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and his colleagues. Uh, They thought they were making good progress in getting inflation under control. But Powell told lawmakers this week that if economic indicators keep coming in hot like that, the Fed may have to hit the brakes harder by raising interest rates even faster than they have been. If, and I stress that no decision has been made on this, but if the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we'd be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. Now, the Fed's next rate-setting meeting is coming up in less than two weeks, and the strength of today's jobs report will be a big factor in whether they raise rates by a quarter point, like they did last month, or move more aggressively with a half-point interest rate hike. Yesterday, uh, General Motors said it's uh, offering buyouts to most of its white-collar workers. That's just one of the few big companies that's cutting jobs. Uh, Scott, how does that square with these really strong jobs numbers? Yeah, there have been a lot of headlines about layoffs, especially in the tech sector and also with some manufacturing firms. So far, though, this isn't making much of a dent in the overall jobs data. You know, unemployment remains super low. And that's one reason the Fed feels like it has some latitude to move aggressively against inflation. Powell did get some pushback this week from Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. She notes that an informal forecast by Fed officials back in December showed unemployment climbing to 4.6 percent this year. Now, that would still be quite low by historical standards, but it does imply a loss of about 2 million jobs. Here's Powell's rather testy exchange with the senator. Right now, the unemployment rate is 3.4 percent, which is the lowest in 54 years. And we actually don't think that we need to see a sharp or enormous increase in unemployment to get inflation under control. I'm looking at your projections. Do you call laying off 2 million people this year not a sharp increase in unemployment? I would say 4.5%. Explain that to the 2 million families who are going to be out of work. Now, Powell insists the Fed is not trying to put anybody out of work. Uh, He also adds working people are getting hurt right now by high inflation. So what sectors then might feel the pinch of the slowdown the most? The housing market's very sensitive to rising interest rates. Uh, mortgage rates jumped again this week to nearly six and three quarters percent. So that's going to likely weigh on construction workers and realtors and mortgage brokers. Factories are also feeling some pressure. But, you know, the services sector continues to expand. And that's a big share of what people spend money on. And it's also a big share of the workforce. NPR Scott Horsley. Scott, thanks. You're welcome. The Supreme Court 
faces criticism over the ethics of individual justices. Critics questioned their contacts with people who have an interest in cases. They especially questioned Justice Clarence Thomas, whose wife Ginny pushed to overturn a Democratic election in 2020. But nobody can say the justices have violated their code of conduct. Nobody can say that because they do not have a code of conduct. Now some activists have tried to imagine one. Here's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. It's not that the justices don't know their lack of an ethics code is adding fuel to the fire of lost public trust. They reportedly have discussed the subject of an ethics code, but apparently have not reached any agreement. Now, however, two groups have written what they call a model code of conduct for the Supreme Court, and it's getting generally favorable reviews. The groups are the Project on Government Oversight, a nonpartisan independent government watchdog, and the Lawyers Defending American Democracy. Their effort follows an increasing drumbeat of criticism aimed at the court for perceived ethical lapses and failures to deal with them. Most recently, the American Bar Association passed a resolution calling on the justices to adopt a binding code of ethics and urged other bar associations around the country to pass similar resolutions. The proposed model code of conduct announced yesterday couches its objective in modest terms. Here's Sarah Tuberville, the lead writer. It's sort of beyond debate now that the justices do need a code of conduct. So this is a start. The proposed ethics rules are based on the already existing code of conduct that applies to lower federal court judges. But the proposed new rules go further. The model code sets out clear and more stringent guidelines for recusal, prohibitions against conduct that creates an appearance of partiality, and rigorous obligations for disclosure of gifts and sources of income. In particular, for instance, the model code would require justices to disqualify themselves from cases involving litigants and groups involved in a justice's confirmation. The code would bar close family members from engaging in political or other activities that present the appearance of partisanship. And it would also bar Supreme Court justices from appearing before groups with partisan or ideological agendas, groups like the Conservative Federalist Society or the Liberal American Constitution Society. It would also recognize that certain political activities by a spouse or other close family members would require justices to recuse themselves. It would, say the authors, require justices to forego activities in which they have until now freely engaged, but that, they argue, is an appropriate requirement for a lifetime position imbued with enormous power. NYU law professor Stephen Gillers, author of perhaps the leading text on judicial ethics, says 85% of the recommendations in the proposed model code are already the rules for lower court judges, rules that the Supreme Court has said it consults as guidelines for itself but is not bound by. Gillers believes that the only reason the court has not actually been able to come up with a code of conduct for itself is that some of the justices quote, don't want to be pushed around. Every judge in America is governed by ethics rules except nine. Guess who they are? That said, though, he points to a particular problem on the court. Only peer pressure would make any new rules enforceable. So all nine justices would have to sign on. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington.
This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, at long last, today is finally the day legal mobile sports betting starts in Massachusetts. WBUR's Walter Wuthman visited the company DraftKings ahead of the launch. And in our next hour, why it's hard to tell time on the moon. When it comes to telling time here on Earth, don't forget to spring forward one hour either late Saturday night or early Sunday morning. Mostly sunny in upper 40s today, cloudy in mid-30s tonight, a chance of rain and snow overnight. Snow also possible tomorrow morning, followed by rain that may last into the early afternoon. It'll only be in the upper 30s. Sunday, mostly sunny in the low 40s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. Small businesses in Massachusetts are having trouble finding workers, and they're not alone. A new report from the National Federation of Independent Business finds nearly half of small businesses in the U.S. are unable to fill current job openings. Christopher Carlozzi is the organization's director for Massachusetts. He, some, he says some local industries are having a harder time than others. Businesses that require workers with a certain skill set or a certain educational background, namely construction or manufacturing, they're struggling even more to find workers because they need people that can do the job. Carlozzi says the high cost of living in the state is driving away some skilled workers. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Legalized mobile sports betting goes live today in Massachusetts. DraftKings, one of the largest companies in the mobile gambling market, is based here in Boston. On the eve of launch, WBUR's Walter Wuthman took a trip to DraftKings headquarters. DraftKings designed their Back Bay offices to feel like a stadium. Instead of luxury boxes, there are conference rooms. All of our conference areas are named after iconic sports figures. So front of the house, we've got Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, kind of no-brainers, right? That's senior communications manager Parker Winslow, my tour guide for the day. Around the corner, there's an in-house barbershop, a nail salon, and a full TV studio. Okay, I can feel now that this is a full city block. This is you feel it now, this right? is huge. As you're it. It's a long way from where this company started over a decade ago. Co-founder Matt Kalish recalls starting DraftKings with his friends Jason Robbins and Paul Lieberman. Paul had a spare bedroom in his condo in Watertown, so we repurposed that into our first ever little workspace that we were going nights and weekends. DraftKings began with daily fantasy sports, real athletes playing on made-up teams that users drafted. But the company really took off after the Supreme Court struck down a law prohibiting sports betting in 2018. 
Mobile gaming companies like DraftKings jumped on the opportunity to allow users to bet on games right from their phones. And since then, it's been one state after another really just launching regulated legal sports betting in the U.S. DraftKings and other operators like FanDuel and BetMGM spent hundreds of thousands of dollars lobbying for legalized sports betting in Massachusetts. The legislature passed a bill in the summer, making Massachusetts the 36th state to allow commercial sports betting. Being able to launch our biggest product in Mass means a tremendous amount. And there's like a home field advantage in a way. Like I think, and I know we all believe very much that we need to do very well in Massachusetts. DraftKings and its rivals are running big promos to try to get new users online. Ads on billboards, TV, and across social media offer hundreds of dollars in credit. DraftKings Sportsbook is coming to Massachusetts. Download the app now to get $200 in bonus bets when we go live. Action's so good, why bet anywhere else? There's a reason that they're offering you $200 free, right? Because they're expecting to get that back in the long run. That's Victor Matheson, a sports economist at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester. If I can get you hooked now and get you hooked with my app now, the $200 I'm going to spend on you today is going to be tiny compared to the amount you're going to be spending on me from now and forever. Sports gambling at the state's casinos went live in January, but Matheson predicts that after today, about 90% of sports bets will be placed online. Matheson says the sheer number of ads blanketing the state reveal how much money is at stake here. The numbers are huge. So if Massachusetts goes the way that we've seen, for example, in New Jersey or Arizona, we will be looking at about $5 billion of bets being made on sports betting in Massachusetts. And to be clear, that's $5 billion per year. The state projects bringing in up to $60 million annually in new taxes from legalized sports betting. But sports betting comes with risks. Public health experts warn that immigrant communities, young people, and people in recovery are more vulnerable to problem gambling. Matheson says his Holy Cross students often ask for his thoughts about sports gambling. To the extent it's an entertainment product, it's great. But I tell them uh, if you're trying to do this as a way to actually make money, this is likely to be a pretty expensive habit for you. On that note, the day sports betting went live in Massachusetts casinos, to see how it all worked, I placed a $10 bet on the New York Knicks to beat the Los Angeles Lakers that night. I lost. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, we'll talk more about the health risks of gambling. We'll also look at some of the guardrails in place in Massachusetts for gambling addiction. Then at 11, it's Radio Boston, and Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Friday. Are you going to be placing a bet today? Happy Friday, Rupa. I will not. That is not a thing in which I think I ever (laughs) plan to partake. I have to admit, I will say, though, we are working on trying to put together a segment for next week, looking at the impact it's likely to have on college campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that could be quite interesting. Yeah. So, But nope, I will be betting free at 10 a.m. today. All right. But I'm betting that you're going to be talking about a three-year anniversary today. That is a very good bet because it is three years today since the state shut down for COVID. Um, it's been a long three years. We know people are struggling with how much they even want to think about it. But no, they must think about it. What we're going to do today is check back in with a bunch of people that we got to know very well in the early days. Mm-hmm. Across healthcare, nursing homes, business, a whole bunch of areas. And really focus on, okay, what is fundamentally different now, three years later? What are we better at? What have we learned? How are we prepping for the future? Um, I actually think it's going to be some really satisfying conversations. 
sounds fascinating. I can't believe it's been three years. It, feel, it doesn't even feel like six. It feels like nine or something. Yeah, I, I really, that joke that time has kind of lost all meaning. Yeah. There's kind of something to that. <laughs> Thank you, Tiziana. Happy Friday, Rupa. Happy Friday. That's Radio Boston today at 11 at 751. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Join artists, educators, and counselors and turn your potential into a rewarding career. Explore programs at leslie.edu. And AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. House music is having a moment. That was clear at the Grammys last month, where Beyonce picked up multiple awards for her album Renaissance. Here's part of her acceptance speech. I'd like to thank the queer community for your love and for inventing this genre. She was paying tribute to people in Chicago in the 1970s and 80s who created house music and underground clubs that were all their own. From NPR's history podcast through line, here are Ramtin Arablouei and Rund Abdel-Fattah. Inside a lone industrial building in Chicago, Illinois, people dance intensely in a sea of fog. A figure emerges from the mist. Behind a set of turntables, surrounded by crates full of records, his arms move back and forth to the rhythm of the music. Frantic, frenetic movement. I mean, just dancing like he had no tomorrow to come his way. The DJ controls the party and the dancers like a conductor. Move your body. This really magical place. Welcome to The Warehouse. The Warehouse was an after-hours private club. I felt like I was Alice in Wonderland. So you had to know somebody to get an invite in or to even attend. The warehouse, or the house, was a home for people who wanted a safe place to party. It's also what many consider the birthplace of house music. It's like a story. You know, like there's a beginning and a middle and the end. You just wanted to be there for the whole thing. Frantic, frenetic movement. I remember the feeling more than I remember the music. We can all be free. (sighs) Chicago house music, like all music, is hard to describe. But it usually has a beat kind of like this. It's funky, repetitive, and is generally around 120 beats per minute. Kind of like your heart rate when you're dancing. That repetition, that beat, causes an almost ritualistic feeling of being perfectly in sync with other people. It mimics the feeling of love, of letting go. I guess if you had to describe it, you could say it was akin to gospel dance music. Gospel dance music. That's Frederick Dunson. He was at those early house music shows in the 1980s, dancing all night until the sun came up. 
there was no pause, that you just experienced it all night. And DJ Lori Branch, a Chicago-born house music historian and DJ who grew up sneaking into the warehouse. I was like trying to find my life and I found this community that just felt like home. We all accept each other and we all love each other. For both Lori and Frederick, house music provided more than just a good time. It was a lifeline, a means of claiming space in a city that could often feel too small. Chicago in the 1980s was one of the most segregated cities in America. Black and white communities lived in different neighborhoods, different parts of the city. So if you were Black, there were clubs and parties you just didn't have access to. And if you were Black and gay, there were even less. The reason that the underground clubs evolved was because most of the gay clubs gave most of the minorities a really hard time in getting in. While a white patron might be asked to show one form of ID. When it got to me, they'd ask me for three or four. A clear sign to Frederick, a black man, that he was not welcome. And so as a result of that, people just said, oh, well, we could do our own thing and start doing underground parties. It was a solution to a situation that wasn't getting any better. Frederick says that was why the warehouse was necessary and why it was so beloved. It was a sanctuary, a place for both Black and gay people to feel welcome and safe, where the music and dancing created community. It gave you the strength to carry on, to make it from week to week. Because, you know, people would look forward to, oh God, next Saturday, see you next Saturday, see you next Saturday, because it was their release. The warehouse was like a dance church, a place to refuel and be in community, to be seen, to be loved, to dance away the pain and embrace the beauty, no matter how fleeting. (sighs) But house music didn't stay in Chicago's underground club culture for long. It became a global phenomenon in the late 80s and 90s, helping spark rave culture in the UK and Europe, and sparking the growth of electronic dance music, or EDM. House music was the foundation on which EDM's legs stand. Today, EDM is one of the most popular and profitable genres of music. There are DJs and festivals that make millions and millions of dollars every year. And Frederick Dunson says that success has obscured our view of the people and places that inspired it all. For new musicians to say, oh, well, we created this, we created that, that's not, that wouldn't be right. That's not giving credit to the people who actually put the work in. Which is why he and DJ Lori Branch. I think that history gets erased often, and we are just now starting to to claim that are committed to keeping the history of house music alive. They want to make sure the Chicago black and gay origins of house music and electronic dance music are not forgotten. It is a Chicago product made by Chicagoans, made by black and brown, queer, straight folk. And if you want to understand a genre, if you want to understand a people, there's no better place. The intersection of of races and you know, the different cultures that have come together to create it is what made it special, and I think what made it international. The voice of DJ Lori Branch there. The hosts of Throughline, the awesome podcast, are Rhonda Delfata and Ramtin Arablui. You can hear the whole episode by finding Throughline 
wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, thanks for listening to Morning Edition, which comes to you on your public radio station. You can continue to stay tuned throughout the day. You can hear all things considered. And you also, when you listen to NPR News, you get the kind of perspective that you do from our friends at ThruLine. The fact is, the latest, latest news is not always the most important thing. You want perspective. You want a longitudinal study, if you want to say it in a fancy way. And that's what the folks at ThruLine do and what we try to do here at NPR. I just want to hear more house music. There we go. More house music. Theme music by B.J. Lederman. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, searching globally for value in both traditional and alternative investments to pursue attractive, sustainable returns for clients. LoomisSales.com. And Uncommon Feasts Catering, full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings, Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Eight people have been killed in a shooting at a Jehovah's Witnesses Hall in Hamburg, Germany. The shooter is believed dead. Many others are injured. It's Friday, March 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, Chinese leader Xi Jinping wins a rare third term as president as experts try to guess the future of China-U.S. relations. I think China poses a threat, potentially. Uh, China, uh, I would characterize more, though, as, as a serious rival to the United States. Plus the safeguards in place to prevent gambling addiction as legal mobile sports betting begins in Massachusetts. Also, the lessons learned and what's ahead three years after COVID-19 shut down the state and the world. Really what we need to continue to do is to invest in those social determinants of health, healthy housing, food security, access to health care. Mostly sunny in the 40s today. It's 801. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Members of President Biden's cabinet are fanning out on Capitol Hill today. They'll testify about the president's new budget proposal. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports that will include Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Secretary Yellen is set to testify multiple times this month on Capitol Hill, starting with an appearance today before the House Ways and Means Committee. The panel is likely to question her about President Biden's proposed budget that aims to cut the national deficit by nearly $3 trillion over the next 10 years. During her testimony, Yellen is expected to repeat her demand that lawmakers lift the nation's debt ceiling without the spending cuts that Republicans have demanded. The two parties remain deadlocked over the terms of lifting the borrowing limit. Without a deal, the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills by sometime this summer. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Later this hour, the Labor Department releases its latest snapshot on February employment. Economists want to see if hiring was as robust as it was in January. That's when about half a million jobs were created. Railroad Norfolk Southern says it's warning other railroads about a potential safety defect. This involves rail car wheels that could come loose. Norfolk Southern officials say they discovered this while investigating a train derailment earlier this week. But they say this problem could affect other rail companies. 
Meanwhile, cleanup continues in East Palestine, Ohio, the site of last month's toxic Norfolk Southern train derailment. City resident John Theory says the accident may have wrecked his retirement plans. I planned on selling my house, downsizing, and enjoying my retirement. Now, how much am I going to sell my house for? Norfolk Southern Railroad had another freight train derailment yesterday in Alabama. Railroad officials say there is no danger to the public. Authorities in Germany are investigating the motive of a shooter who killed at least six people at a Jehovah's Witnesses Hall in Hamburg last night. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more. Police say they found the body of the alleged gunman on site. The man is believed to have been a former member of the U.S. headquarters Jehovah's Witnesses, which claims nearly 9 million adherents worldwide. Thursday night's shooting took place in the Grossbostel district of Hamburg at around 9 in the evening local time. Police found several people dead and others injured by bullets when they arrived shortly after. In a tweet, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who served as mayor of Hamburg five years ago, said his thoughts are with the victims and their relatives. Shootings in Germany, which has stringent gun restrictions, are rare. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Saudi Arabia and Iran say they have agreed to reestablish diplomatic relations. They released a joint statement today with China, which apparently brokered the arrangement. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Trains on all four subway lines of the T are going slower than normal this morning, and it's not clear how long that could last. The MBTA announced last night that trains will be limited to between 10 and 25 miles an hour. The agency says that's the result of a safety inspection done recently on a section of the red line. A federal investigation last year found staffing shortages, a bad safety culture, and a need to improve training at the MBTA. Also on the T this morning, Buses are replacing trains on the blue line between Suffolk Downs and Maverick because of a power problem. When running for state auditor last year, Diana Desaglio vowed to examine confidential settlement agreements across state government. Now that she's in office, she vows to make good on that promise. WBUR's Todd Wallach reports. Desaglio says she worries non-disclosure agreements could bar victims from speaking out about discrimination, harassment, and sex abuse. So she says her office will conduct an audit to see how these agreements are used in Massachusetts state government. We spoke to Desaglio while she was traveling to her office in Chicopee. Taxpayers should know if their money has been or is being spent to force silence on victims and protect the politically powerful from accountability. Desaglio says she was forced to sign a non-disclosure agreement when she was a legislative aide years ago. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Boston residents have until the end of this month to get a $75 gift card with their next COVID-19 shot. The Boston Public Health Commission is offering the incentive at its walk-in vaccine clinics. The gift cards will be given to residents getting a first or second dose or a booster shot. But the commission says the incentive will run out on March 31st. Governor Maura Healey is carrying on a tradition started by her predecessor. She got her hair buzzed as part of a fundraiser for Boston Children's Hospital. To be clear, not all of her hair was buzzed, just the sides. The work was done by the Patriots' Devin McCourty. Former Governor Charlie Baker got a buzz cut for the fundraiser every year when he was in office. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. The Bruins lost to the Edmonton Oilers last night. The final at the Garden was 3-2. to two. The Bees will host the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. Mostly sunny today. It'll get into the upper 40s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 30s. A chance for rain or snow tomorrow. Otherwise cloudy and in the upper 30s. Mostly sunny on Sunday and in the 40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. All right, California's run of intense winter weather is not over. The first of two atmospheric rivers is hitting the state today. Somewhere over the head of A. Martinez, there's a high risk of flooding and landslides and avalanches. And Governor Gavin Newsom wants President Biden to declare an emergency and release federal aid. NPR's Nathan Rott is in Southern California. Nathan, before I drove into NPR West, the skies looked like they were about to tear open at any moment. It looks like it could be a pretty big storm. Yeah, it definitely is. You know, we're talking about forecasts of more than 100 inches of snow at some mountain passes in the Sierra Nevada, upwards of 10 inches of rain in some parts of Central California. It'll be a little tamer down here in Southern California. But millions of people were put under flood watches Thursday in anticipation of this atmospheric river that's expected to really hit home today. Uh, Atmospheric rivers being essentially giant conveyor belts of moisture that cart water from the tropics to places like California. This one is carrying water from near Hawaii. And what's unique about this storm and concerning is that it's expected to bring rain to areas that have already been inundated with snow. Yeah, there's some mountain communities that are still trying to dig themselves out. Yeah, that's right. I mean, places like Big Bear, not far from where both of us are, which has been dealing with blocked roads and power outages from that deep snow. But even more so in central parts of the state, you know, the concern there is a that rain could fall at pretty high elevations onto some of these places that already are buried in snow. And so the problem that that could cause is this rain could be absorbed by the snow. And as any experienced driveway shoveler knows, wet snow is a heck of a lot heavier than dry. So it could add extra stress to structures that are still buried or trigger avalanches. The other problem is potential runoff. Rain and warmer temperatures could help melt more of the snow, adding to these flood concerns. Here's Carla Namath, the director of California's Department of Water Resources, at a briefing yesterday. Rivers and creeks can rise very quickly, and so it does have the potential to be a dangerous situation, uh, particularly in areas that had experienced flooding before. Which, if you remember, A, is a whole lot of California, as we've been seeing this year. Yeah. So what are officials uh, trying to do to lower those risks? So they're urging everyone who's experienced flooding this year, particularly those who live near a river or creek, to be ready to go, right? The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation and the California's Department of Water Resources have been strategically releasing water from reservoirs so that they can handle all of this incoming runoff, which is a kind of wild thing because just last year, nearly all of California was in some state of drought. So letting go of water would have seemed unthinkable. All right. So you mentioned the D word, Nate. Uh, Anytime it rains in California, people want to know, is the drought over? 
I'm sorry, A, it is not. Groundwater reservoirs in much of California are still very much depleted. Remember, people suck so much water out of the earth in some parts of California during the heart of the drought that the ground actually sank. More broadly, though, if we step back, the mega drought plaguing California is also impacting much of the western U.S. And California depends on a lot of water from that broader region. So the good news is many parts of the west are seeing a wet year. Skiers are having a heyday. But this drought has brought to light some bigger fundamental issues about water in the western U.S., the way that it's used, the way that it's allocated, issues like the whole system being predicated on a presumption that there's more water available than there normally is. And even a really wet winter, like we're experiencing right now, it does not address all of those concerns. That's NPR's Nathan Rott reporting from Southern California. Nathan, stay dry. You as well, eh? How much should the United States regard China as a threat? And how should the U.S. respond? Those questions are on the minds of U.S. officials during this week that President Xi Jinping begins a third term in office. In Washington this week, Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, named China as the top U.S. concern. The People's Republic of China, which is increasingly challenging the United States economically, technologically, politically, and militarily around the world, remains our unparalleled priority. She was speaking to lawmakers who seem to agree, regardless of party, on pursuing tough policies against China. Yet the intelligence chief also gave the best assessment of U.S. analysts that China still wants stability with the United States instead of conflict. So what if the bipartisan consensus on a tough approach to China is wrong. David Rothkopf has been asking that question. He's a columnist for the Daily Beast and a former senior trade official in the Clinton administration. Good morning, sir. Morning. Let's start with the threat. Is China a serious threat to the United States? I think China poses a threat, potentially. Uh, China, uh, I would characterize more, though, as, as a serious rival to the United States. So when you played the clip of Avril Haines. She talked about economic, uh, technological, and political rivalry. uh, And that's different from being a threat. And I think we need to be able to compete with that. Uh, But when we view it as a threat, uh, then we put ourselves into a kind of uh, confrontational position, which can actually damage our interests uh, and make things more dangerous. With that said, what is wrong with toughening policies against China? Because you can make the argument very easily that China has not followed the rules of the international system, has not followed the rules of intellectual property, has not followed the basic rules of, of capitalism while pursuing their own version of it. Is it that the, the China is a national security state that is that is reaching around the world? Is it is it wrong to to toughen U.S. policies against those things? I don't think it's wrong to harden our defenses against Chinese intrusion, whether it's uh, espionage or uh, intellectual property theft. Uh, but I do think that the thing that has proven to be most effective with intellectual property theft is multilateral efforts, multilateral efforts to make trade and technology uh, secure. We haven't gotten there yet, but if we act alone, what we found in the past is that other nations will trade with China, they will continue exactly along their path. Uh, it's, it's, it's easier to act alone, but it's not as effective. I would say that President Trump acted alone in many cases against China, but President Biden, the Biden administration, has taken a different approach of trying to coordinate other nations against China. What do you think they're getting wrong? 
Uh, well, I don't think they're getting a lot wrong uh, in terms of coordinated approach, for example, on security. They've uh, elevated uh, the Quad, which is our partnership with Japan and India and Australia. They have elevated AUKUS, which is another partnership. I think these things are positive. I was speaking specifically uh, on the multilateral front to the issue of uh, trade in technology products. We're trying to deny them access to those products. They're going to get them from someplace else uh, unless we have an actually a kind of a global effort to do that. Uh, we've got to get them to play by the rules. Uh, pretending that they're uh, not going to be trading with other people is not going to work for us. What are the risks of going too far? Well, the risks of going too far are that we heighten tensions uh, and we create situations that accidentally escalate. Uh, you can look at, for example, the situation with Taiwan last year when Nancy Pelosi went there. The Chinese felt they had to respond. Uh, we felt we had to respond to the Chinese. You could imagine an accident or, or uh, you know, some other kind of uh, event that would uh, trigger conflict. Uh, we need to be careful of that. It's not in our interest. It's not in their interest, as Avril Haines said. Have we already reached a point where if someone said, I want to be more creative in our approach to China, I want to be a little more patient in our approach to China, they would be accused of being soft on China the way that people in the Cold War were accused of being soft on communism? Uh, definitely, we've reached that point. I think we're already down the road to towards a Cold War, which is a mistake. You know, China's not like the Soviet Union. There's 70,000 U.S. companies operating in China. We take five, six hundred billion dollars in exports from China. We need China to solve, uh, or to work with China on global problems, uh, and uh, and we have to continue to do all those things even as we defend ourselves against potential risks. David Rothkoff, thanks very much for the insights. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. He is a columnist for the Daily Beast and a former senior trade official in the Clinton administration. All right, Steve, here's my Captain Obvious moment. Uh, in California, where I'm at, the clock says one thing. For you, Steve, on the East Coast, it says another. Who knew? NPR West, where you are, is in a different time zone than Studio 31 here in Washington, where I am now with our crew. But uh, what time is it on the moon? I'd never really wondered that question before, but scientists like Brees DeAndrea are trying to figure this out. Counting time is not straightforward. We are used to count time like 24 hours a day, 60 minutes per hour, 60 seconds per minute, but it's not absolute. It's what we are used to experience on Earth, but it's not happening like that out of Earth. At this time, De Andrea is with the European Space Agency, where they're thinking about giving the moon its own time zone. Yeah, that might be easier said than done. For one thing, a day on the moon is equal to 28 days on Earth, and clocks run slightly faster on the moon because gravity is different there. Which matters to space crews coordinating complex missions with scientists on Earth. The tiniest discrepancy can throw off calculations of space and distance and could mean life or death for astronauts on the moon. The oxygen and the gas is what you have. I mean, you cannot wait for someone to come and get you. You have to go back to your base. So if you make a mistake on the positioning and you miss your spot, it can become very dangerous. Space historian and author Andrew Chaikin says it's not a new problem. The astronauts who went to the moon on the Apollo missions, they set their watches to Houston time because that's where mission control was. But 
really what they referred to was something called mission elapsed time, which was the time that had elapsed from the moment that their rocket lifted off the Earth. And that was the common language. International missions today often use coordinated universal time, the time, the standard that most countries use to set their clocks. But as space exploration missions grow more sophisticated, the clock will need to be even more precise. Breeze de Andrea estimates about 100 scientists are working on a lunar time zone. So it could take a lot of time, and years in fact, actually, to figure all that out. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, Massachusetts Public Health Commissioner Margaret Cook marks three years to the day of the start of the COVID pandemic by looking at lessons learned and what's ahead. It's 819. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, the state shut down for COVID exactly three years ago. Leaders in healthcare, education, and social justice join us to reflect on how we've endured and how much the world has changed. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly sunny today with a high in the upper 40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Camp Marrow Vista, where kids ages 8 to 17 discover their best selves in the New Hampshire mountains. Enrolling now at ayf.com slash Vista. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today marks three years since Governor Charlie Baker declared a state of emergency in Massachusetts due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Since then, there have been more than 2 million confirmed cases in the state and more than 22,000 residents have died from COVID. Here to look back and talk about where we are now is Department of Public Health Commissioner Margaret Cook. Thanks so much for being here, Commissioner. And thank you for having me, Rupa. It's great to be here. So what do you think the biggest lessons we've learned are over the past three years? Health equity needs to be continued and centered in all of the decisions that we make going forward. We know that communities that went into the pandemic in a stronger position weathered the storm in a better way. But what we saw in so many communities, uh, BIPOC populations, is that they were disproportionately affected. Really what we need to continue to do is to invest in those social determinants of health, things like healthy housing, uh, food security, access to health care, so that if and probably when we do face the next pandemic, those communities are as strong as every other one. 
This week, the state announced it'll close the remaining state-run free COVID testing sites. What's the significance of that? The significance is uh, that they're not being used uh, to the extent that they were. I, th- I think you can attribute that to a variety of things. One is a great reason, and it's because less people are getting COVID because they're vaccinated and they're boosted. So that's terrific. One of the reasons is the rapid antigen tests are so widely available now. Municipalities can now actually still purchase them at the state rate. Um, they can give them out. We have given out thousands and thousands of the tests. Where should we be with masking? Should we all be masking? Would you prefer that? Or are we okay being in a room like this with close quarters without being masked? Yeah, I think we have so many tools in our toolbox right now besides masking, or perhaps I should say in addition to masking. Masking is absolutely something you should consider if you're immunocompromised, if you're in a large crowd and you're feeling uncomfortable, if you're trying to make sure. I think more importantly, uh, we should come back to vaccines. The one biggest lesson that we learned throughout COVID is that vaccines save lives, and there's no way around that fact. To dig into that a little bit more, again, in the state, 93 percent of residents, to your point, got at least one dose of the vaccine, which is higher than the national average. But beyond that, the numbers start to drop off. For example, only 62 percent of people who are fully vaccinated have gotten a booster. How important is it that we continue to focus on vaccination and boosters going forward? It's so important. And if I can send one message out to everybody today, it would be please get your booster and please get your bivalent booster. We're currently a little over 30% of the population that has received their bivalent bo- booster, but it's, it's not high enough. This is a constantly changing virus and people should have the most up-to-date protection that they can. And that is the current bivalent booster. Are we in a situation now that we are just always going to be prepared for another pandemic? Or if there is another one, will we have to move very quickly again to get the resources in place? I think actually we have learned a lot from the last few years. We don't know where the next uh, virus will come from or how it will mutate or, or change over time. We, so we need to keep our eyes open to all sorts of, of possibilities. It could come from an insect. It could be a foodborne virus. It could be uh, an animal virus like bird flu that we're seeing across the country right now. And so one of the things that we've really tried to keep in place is um, a collaboration with our healthcare partners, with our emergency preparedness people. And I think that collaboration will, will do us well in the future. Margaret Cook is the Massachusetts Commissioner of Public Health. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Coming up at 11 today on Radio Boston, a closer focus on the third anniversary of the COVID emergency here in Massachusetts. Tiziana Deering will take a look at how it affected education, social justice, and health care. That's today at 11 here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. It's Friday which is when we hear from StoryCorps. 70-year-old Jim Von Stein made a living installing heating and air conditioning systems. In his trailer in rural Tennessee, there are also mountains of notebooks, scraps of paper, and napkins where he scribbled song lyrics. He's been writing songs since he was nine. Few people heard them. He came to StoryCorps with his son, Jason. My mom used to listen to uh, people like Elvis and Patsy Cline, which really, that touched my heart for those lyrics. And my dad, he barely played on a guitar. He played three chords, and I think one of them was wrong. 
But every once in a while, he'd drink, he'd get that guitar out and play. Of course, I wanted to get a guitar. My dad said, you're not going to have that noisemaker around here. <laughs> but that made me become a, a lyricist for sure, because that was the only way I could connect to music, you know, through lyrics, still telling stories. But, you know, you got to have heartstrings. And that's why I write songs. I try to write not just about me, not about any of my life, but about everybody's life. You worked at the shipyard for many years, and they would send you out to San Francisco, and you really missed us. I remember you came back, and you wrote that song, Always Missing You. And then we did a recording of that for Mom. I guess I was five. When you were writing those songs, those were number one hits. When did you first realize you were sick, Ned? Well, they told me I had severe emphysema. There was a uh, doctor, and she came in here and she said, uh, here's a picture of your lung. And they were cold black. They told me, uh, you know, that I had expiration date. It's like you're going underwater and you're trying to catch your breath. That's what it feels like all the time. But I'm still breathing. That's what matters. I remember you asked me, uh, what were my regrets? Did I have any? And I told you I regretted that I didn't go out and play my music. You stopped everything you were doing and learned songs of mine. You learned every one of them, and I didn't realize it until you started playing them. Why did you decide to do it? I mean, because your songs deserve to be heard. You can't spend your entire life devoting yourself to something, and then nobody hears that? That's not okay. You got so much time in your hourglass, and that's how you use it. And that's up to you. Long after I'm dead and gone and people forgot who I was, the song has its own life. And you are the, the voice for my songs. Got a boy and he's five years old. He listen to what he's told. Oh, man. Jim and Jason Von Stein. Jim still writes songs every day, more than 8,000 to date. And Jason plays his dad's music wherever he can. Hear more of their story on the StoryCorps podcast at npr.org. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru. Introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Solterra. And from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, Ukraine is expected to be the big topic of discussion today when European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen visits the White House. It's 829. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina 
or from all agents. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Germany aren't yet commenting on a possible motive following last night's deadly shooting in Hamburg. At least a half dozen people were killed by a gunman at a Jehovah's Witnesses Hall. South Korea's president says his government will work with the U.S. to bolster Seoul's deterrence against North Korea. NPR's Anthony Kuhn says the pledge follows Pyongyang's latest missile tests. President Yoon Song-yeol promised more military exercises with the U.S., including joint planning for the use of nuclear weapons. The U.S. and South Korea start large-scale military exercises next Monday, and Seoul warns that North Korea could use the drills as an excuse to launch military provocations, including a seventh nuclear test. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says Republicans in Congress will examine President Biden's latest budget proposal before introducing their own. The president unveiled his nearly $7 trillion spending plan yesterday during a speech in Pennsylvania. Here's Democratic Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois. Now it's Speaker McCarthy's turn after all of these promises and threats of what he's going to do to our economy and to our deficit situation. Put your budget on the table. What is it you want to do? Let's see it. The president's proposal calls for higher taxes on corporations and people making more than $400,000 a year. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's another morning of slow going on the T, and this time it affects riders on all four subway lines. The MBTA announced last night trains on the red, orange, blue, and green lines will be limited to between 10 and 25 miles per hour. That'll cause major delays for commuters. The T would only say the speed restrictions are a result of a visit to the red line by the agency that oversees the T. Mobile sports betting becomes legal in Massachusetts at 10 this morning. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, Massachusetts is the 36th state to legalize sports gambling. Sports betting went live in the state's casinos in January. But Holy Cross sports economist Victor Matheson says most people will now bet using mobile apps like DraftKings and FanDuel. In the states that have both a pretty big casino presence as well as a well-developed online presence, you're talking at least 90% of all bets coming in online. Again, even only a tiny percentage in the casinos. The state projects bringing in up to $60 million in new tax revenue from sports betting every year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. If you're insured through MassHealth, you'll want to check the mail. WBUR's Gary Hogopian explains why you should be on the lookout for a blue envelope. Some 400,000 people are expected to be booted off the state-run health insurance program over the next year. That's because federal Medicaid coverage requirements were relaxed since the start of the pandemic. That will end, and the state will be going through the required process of redetermining eligibility. About half of members will receive a letter saying they're automatically renewed. Others will receive a blue envelope MassHealth says is meant as an attention grabber to indicate that action is needed or else they risk losing coverage. The agency also says it's double the number of customer service reps to handle an expected increase in calls. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Garo Hagopian. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. 
The Bruins lost last night for the first time in 11 games. They fell to the Edmonton Oilers 3-2 at the Garden. The Bees will skate with the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. The Red Sox remain undefeated at spring training. They beat the Yankees yesterday 11-7. The Sox will play the Blue Jays this afternoon. Mostly clear skies today with a high near 50. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to the mid-30s. There's a slight chance of snow or rain overnight. On Saturday morning, snow turns into rain and showers last into the early afternoon. The high will be near 40. Set your clocks forward Saturday night if you need to wake up at the right time on Sunday morning. It'll be mostly sunny and in the low 40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise, Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The leader of the European Union visits President Biden today. Ursula von der Leyen is president of the European Commission, which is the name for their executive branch. She's done this job for more than three years through the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. And when she meets President Biden today, she is representing the interests of dozens of countries, including France, Italy and her own nation, Germany. And she's likely to tell President Biden the U.S. is unfair to European companies that make green technology. NPR's Rob Schmitz joins us now from Berlin. Rob, what are you worried about? She's worried that the Inflation Reduction Act of the United States is a protectionist act. Um, this is also called the IRA. And it promises tax breaks to companies making technology for clean energy, but only if their operations are located on U.S. soil. And European leaders are really concerned that EU companies will flee Europe to cash in on these tax breaks. Many here feel that the EU economy could be at stake here. When the IRA passed into law, Volkswagen, for example, announced that it put plans for a battery plant in Eastern Europe on hold because the company said it suddenly stood to save more than $10 billion by moving that plant and with it hundreds of jobs to the U.S., since then, it's been waiting for the EU to come forth with a rival deal so that it can weigh its options. But Marcel Fratcher, president of the German Institute for Economic Research, says he's skeptical about that. To be quite honest, I have big doubts that companies like Volkswagen really seriously consider moving certain plans from Europe to the U.S. And what I currently see is a bit of a blackmail. So companies in Europe say, you know, let's see what the Europeans are willing to match, how much money we can get in addition. And that's a very dangerous game. And A. Fretcher says it's dangerous because these companies are trying to squeeze billions of dollars out of an already cash-strapped EU. And when the EU loses money like this, it has less money to help incentivize carbon-saving climate goals. So in the end, he says the environment loses and big multinationals win. So then that's got to be why von der Leyen is in Washington. Yeah, she's trying to negotiate changes to the IRA that wouldn't lead to an exodus of European companies to the U.S. to cash in on these incentives. And, and here in Germany, this is a real threat to the economy. An internal report compiled by the EU and leaked to German media shows that one in four companies in German industry is considering leaving the country. 
Uh, we also know that multinationals like BASF and BMW are considering leaving too because of high energy costs. Then how realistic do you think it is for von der Leyen to convince President Biden to accommodate the EU and then stop that exodus from even happening? Yeah, it does seem possible. A senior White House official speaking on background says that the U.S. wants to make sure that incentives under the IRA and EU incentives for clean energy will not be competing with one another in the sort of zero-sum way. If that happened, this official said it would impact jobs on both sides of the Atlantic and would instead create windfalls for private interests. So it appears that the Biden administration is open to the EU's concerns and would prefer to have a partnership so that the U.S. and the EU can instead work together to reduce their dependence on China, which controls many of the rare earth metals that are needed for this clean energy transition. And this will also be high on the agenda in today's meeting. All right, we're going to hear more about that later today. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz joining us from Berlin. Rob, thanks. Thank you. A conservative Catholic organization in Denver spent at least $4 million on data from dating and hookup apps to track priests. The Washington Post says the nonprofit paid for the data with donations from philanthropists and then shared the information it purchased with Catholic bishops. The Post's Michelle Borstein broke this story with her colleague Heather Kelly. And Michelle Borstein is on the line. Good morning. Good morning. I guess we should define a little more definitely what the group was looking for. Your headline in the Washington Post says Catholic groups spent millions on app data that tracked gay priests. Why gay priests? Well, this is a group that's really prioritizing this kind of conservative view of Catholic life. So our reporting showed that their interest is really in this, you know, prioritizing priests who use these gay hookup apps. The huge data set that they have did include, in much smaller numbers, a variety of other apps, um, which included OkCupid, other gay apps, other straight apps, and that kind of thing. But the vast majority of their data was focused on Grindr which is a, 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 an app that gay men use. I guess we should remind people, uh, according to the rules of the Catholic Church, priests are not supposed to marry. They're supposed to remain celibate. And I guess if you're mm-hmm. concerned about that, you can go poking around and find out if people are following that rule. But you're saying it seems from the data you have, their specific concern was not people engaging in sexual activity, as people who were gay. You also say you have an audio recording of the group president discussing its mission. How did they define what they were doing? Well, they talked about this this heavy concern about celibacy. And there's been, uh, especially in the last few years in the Catholic Church, there's been a concern about bishops and people at the top not sharing information and not holding each other accountable and that kind of thing. So this is kind of reflecting this trend in the Catholic Church where lay people are really saying, look, we can't trust the bishops to take control of things, to clean things up, whether that's the clergy sex abuse issue, which this group does connect to gay priests in particular, or just celibacy and traditional values. So we need to kind of take the reins ourselves and and police this issue. As best you can tell, what have the bishops done with the information they were given? Well, our, you know, we don't have all the information about what went on everywhere, but we know that bishops who received this information had kind of complicated feelings about it. They didn't want their priests to know that they were doing this. So in some cases, we believe that there were priests who were approached in some kind of unclear manner, which is, you know, 
they weren't clear about where they got the information. They just said, you know, we understand that you're using these apps or we, you know, we have some concerns about your behavior or something like that. Um, they were torn about it because some people in the project wanted to just out priests, which is what happened um, two years ago to a, to a priest in Wisconsin who, was, who we believe was found through this data. But I think in general, they were trying to keep the fact that they were doing this project secret. And so people who are affected by it don't realize that, that this is what was behind comments from their bishops. Can I just, in the few seconds we have, clarify something here? There have been horrifying sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic Church going back decades, obviously. Um, but was this group in some way conflating simply being gay with being a pedophile? I think, yeah, I think that they do believe some aspect of that. I mean, the data showed through this particular period of the sex abuse crisis, you know, recent, you know, decades starting in like the, you know, 50s, 60s, that the majority of victims were male. But that's a very complicated issue. To say the least, we've got to stop it there. I'm sad to say, Michelle Borstein of The Washington Post, thanks so much for your insights. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, as legal mobile sports betting launches in Massachusetts today, we hear from the CEO of the Massachusetts Council on Gaming and Health about the risks involved in placing bets. Mostly sunny in upper 40s today, cloudy in mid-30s tonight, a chance of rain and snow overnight. Snow also possible tomorrow morning, followed by rain that may last into the early afternoon. It'll only be in the upper 30s. Sunday, mostly sunny in the low 40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. Boston-based General Electric says it's already seeing growth in its aerospace profit margin. That follows last year's move to spin off its aviation division into an independent business called GE Aerospace. Bloomberg reports the company is predicting its profits to expand by around 20 percent by 2025. GE also completed a split off of its healthcare division in January. A spinoff of its energy business will happen next year. A Newton developer says he's ready to break ground on a new apartment complex in South Boston. The news comes more than 10 years after the project on a vacant lot on H Street was first approved. The building will include 127 units as well as underground parking and retail space. A new restaurant and fish market is coming to the seaport. Hook and Line will be opened by the owner of Alcove Restaurant in Boston's West End. An exact opening date has not yet been announced. It's 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. Two weeks only beginning March 21st. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today is the day legal online sports betting starts in Massachusetts. 
All it takes is an app on your phone to place a bet. Supporters say it'll be an economic boost for the state. Critics worry about the impact on people with gambling addiction. Here to talk about that is Marlene Warner. She's the CEO of the Massachusetts Council on Gaming and Health. Good morning. Good morning. To take a step back, sports betting casinos started back in January, but the Mass Gaming Commission delayed the start of mobile betting until today so it could put some safeguards in place. What measures did the commission come up with to protect people? So the Massachusetts Gaming Commission has had a long history of really prioritizing consumer protections, and that's due also to the state legislature putting so many protections in place back when they legalized casino gambling and also in turn with sports wagering. So there are a number of opportunities to have um, advertising looked at, giving people the opportunity to conduct voluntary self-exclusions where they can keep themselves away from gambling. And then things like player education, making sure that they're able to make an informed decision that they know what they're playing. A lot of that is through the program called GameSense, uh, which came through the advent of, of casino gambling. Are there any protections that we haven't put in place that you think we should? So I think right now the Massachusetts Gaming Commission kind of rushed to get to this point. Uh, and so there is a lot of temporary regulation. So my hope is that in advertising, for example, that there's a lot more time spent thinking about the duration, the content, uh, the third party affiliates, the influencers, especially because we have put so much money into research here in Massachusetts that we know who a lot of the at-risk populations are. Speaking of which, who is the most at risk of having a problem with gambling? So it really depends on the type of games we're talking about. Um, And certainly anyone who's ever struggled with any type of uh, addiction or mental health disorder, that's of concern. Youth are of, of some concern. But when we think about sports wagering in particular, one of the things we know, regardless of the jurisdiction across the world, are young men who aggressively gamble or who gamble a lot, a lot of their money and a lot of their time tend to be um, at risk for pretty severe gambling problems. So we are concerned about that population here in Massachusetts as well. One challenge is that we're always on our phones, you know, reading, texting on social media, and now we're adding gambling to that mix. So how can we tell if the betting is getting out of hand? Are there warning signs? If it was once fun, it's no longer fun. That's certainly a very easy warning sign for an individual to figure out. But oftentimes family members figure out there's a problem long before the individual who is gambling. And so we see, you know, folks who have decided to prioritize gambling over work or over school or people who are preoccupied and um, not able to do anything but think about gambling, spend time gambling, worry about how they're going to get money to gamble. It's not terribly unlike other addictions. However, one of the biggest ways that people see the distinction is that people with gambling problems often are chasing their losses. So they like how they felt when they won and or they know they spent $100 that they borrowed from an account or from a friend or wherever, and they were constantly trying to chase that money down. And it kind of becomes a vicious cycle. So online sports betting is legal in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. Have you learned anything from the way they did things that could tell us how it's going to play out here? Well, I mean, one of the things we know is that kind of right off the bat, all those states have seen a dramatic increase in helpline calls. And I think that's due to two reasons. One is that 
people aren't aware of what they're doing. So they very quickly start to lose money and, and want to um, talk to someone about that. And I think the other thing we've learned is that clinicians need to be trained in a slightly different way to be able to effectively work with people with gambling problems who primarily bet on sports. And the reason for that is it's, it's they're just a whole nother level of sophistication. The technology is different. So if you're used to talking to someone about their track betting or about their slot play, uh, this is going to feel like an entirely different world. Marlene Warner is the CEO of the Mass Council on Gaming and Health. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report team breaks down the February jobs report out this morning. More than 300,000 jobs were added, but the unemployment rate ticked up slightly. Then coming up on the BBC at 9, the political fight brewing between the world's largest country, China, and one of its smallest, Micronesia. It's by 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. I'm Nikin Farsad filling in for Peter Sagal. Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala which she would choose, Taylor Swift tickets or Beyonce tickets. I would want both tickets. I have a Nobel Peace Prize and I get <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, incredible answer. We'll hear your demands on this week's news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The MBTA has put system-wide speed restrictions on all four of its subway lines. That's making for an even slower commute than normal. The T has promised an update at 10 this morning. We'll update that story throughout the day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. Upper 40s today under mostly clear skies, mid-30s tonight, and it'll turn cloudy. Snow possible early Saturday morning. It should become rain by late morning and last into the early afternoon. It'll only be in the upper 30s. Saturday night is when you need to set your clocks forward. Sunday will be in the low 40s and mostly sunny. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 8.51. A jobs report that's strong and weak at the same time. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Vantage Score. Vantage Score's credit scoring models help expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com. I'm David Brancaccio. The numbers for February are in. Unemployment rose two-tenths of a percent to 3.6 percent. Yet, the number of additional people getting paychecks last month came in higher than expected, 311,000. Economist Julia Coronado has read through this. She's founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. Hi, Julia. Good morning. So more people coming into the labor force, making that unemployment rate look higher. Is that what you see? Exactly. More participation. Some of that might reflect stronger immigration. That's something we've seen rebound very sharply over the last year. You want more people working. Now, what about raises, wage growth in February? Right. This is where this is sort of a good news report for the Fed because wage growth is actually slowing. So less inflationary pressure coming from the labor market, even though the jobs numbers are still incredibly robust. Briefly, the betting is interest rates will go up half a percent later this month. Does this change that thinking? 
this is really a Rorschach test for the Federal Reserve. This is uh, less inflationary pressures, but still hot jobs. What's the right recipe to uh, bring inflation down? It could go either way, really. All right. Live, economist Julia Coronado is also a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Markets, S&P futures up three-tenths percent. Interest rates are way down on this jobs report. The 10-year is now at 3.81 percent. Investors are selling bank stocks the world over. In pre-market trading now, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, and Citigroup have stabilized at the moment. But yesterday, an S&P bank index fell more than 6.5%. This is spread to European banks this morning. Some of this is a run on a Silicon Valley bank used by many startup companies. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Investors got spooked after a bout of bad news. First, cryptocurrency-focused Silvergate Capital said it would wind down its operations. And then an institution few have heard of, Silicon Valley Bank, said it's selling shares to raise cash. That spooked customers, the startups themselves, many pulling their funds from that institution. And shares in the bank's parent company, SVB Financial, tanked by more than 60%. Will other banks have to raise cash too and do so by selling low-yield bonds at a loss? Remember, those bond values are down because the Fed is still hiking rates. Questions like those caused a sell-off in shares of even the biggest banks here and abroad. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by BuySide from The Wall Street Journal, an independent commerce site designed to help consumers make smart decisions with their time and money. WSJ.com slash BuySide. And by the Slowdown Podcast. Join award-winning poet Major Jackson, the newest host of the Slowdown, for a hand-picked poem and a moment of reflection every weekday. A shocking family development leads a California journalist and mother into a world of rail yards and hobos, men and women who hop freight trains, in some cases to live as nomads, fueled by an economy of dumpster diving and panhandling. Now, the industry cannot stand this. Woe betide the trespasser who gets caught by railroad police damaging a boxcar. And hear me clearly, jumping trains is super dangerous to limb and to life because of the physics and some of the people. This is just some of what I learned listening to City of the Rails, a podcast hosted by Danelle Morton, who is that journalist. Welcome. Thank you. Living as a hobo still a thing? That surprised you? Well, definitely it did surprise me when my daughter left home to hop trains. Our image of what a hobo is is this kind of, you know, old gentleman with a kind of crushed top hat. But in fact, there's a youthful group of train hoppers who have rejected society because they think of it as morally bankrupt. Now, Danelle, you met charming, reflective people who've ridden the rails sometimes over years. But some of these characters are sketchy, if not homicidal. Well, you know, if you are a criminal and you want to disappear, one place you can disappear is to go down to the train yard and hop a train. I mean, there are a lot of dreamers and musicians and poets, but there are also some very scary people on the rails. What do we compare it to, Danelle? I mean, I have a pal in the mid-60s. She left home to hang with the counterculture crowd in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury. I guess there are parallels. You know, there's kind of a parallel, but, you know, hanging around Haight-Ashbury in the 60s, you were housed up, you know, and you had a community there that probably some people had jobs. They certainly had to make money in some way. There's a sort of anarchist feeling about the train hopping community. One of the people that we feature in the first episode says, you know, our country is full of waste and I don't want to have to work for it. 
and I want to be able to use it and I want to be free. Now, there's lots of risks that come with choosing a life detached from society, but that's a choice that they make. It's sort of a radical act. Mm. All right, then. How about the bestseller Into the Wild, the young man from Virginia who just doesn't want to live a conventional life in the rat race and he wanders off? Well, that's an interesting comparison. The modern hobos are attached to a community, and that's one of the things that helps to keep them safe. Um, so he was going off on a solo quest. You mentioned your daughter went off to ride the rails. I mean, she walked out the moment of her high school graduation and vanished. But you suspected right away, soon after graduation, that she might be turning to the hobo life. Well, what was the clue? She had started a band, and I had this sort of open-door policy that anybody could drop by the house for dinner, and in her senior year, the guests started to change, and some of them had hopped trains. And, you know, when they would spin these amazing tales of all the stars in the sky that you could see from the boxcar, I was kind of swept up in the poetry of it, but I would never even considered the idea that, you know, I would end up on a trainer than anybody I knew would. But my daughter had a plan. And she sang a song at graduation, and we were waiting for her at the reception, and she didn't show up. And I was in a frenzy to find her. And that's part of the show, is me learning more and more about the world of the trains as part of trying to figure out what she did and why she did it. Danelle Morton is a journalist and host of the podcast City of the Rails, a wild journey in its own right. Danelle, thank you. Thank you. Our digital producer is Jarrett Dang. Our engineers are Jess Duller and Nick Esposito. I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be mostly sunny with upper 40s today, cloudy and mid-30s tonight. Snow possible Saturday morning, then rain. It'll be in the upper 30s. Make sure to turn your clocks forward Saturday night. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to Morning Edition this week. Working behind the scenes is Senior Technical Director Mike Toda. Stevie Chapman is our producer. Lainey Ruxtell is our field producer. Our executive producer is Dan Guzman, our managing producer Jeff Cohen. From all of us here at Morning Edition, have a great weekend. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use, alprime.com. And ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org, and thoughtforms-corp.com. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.